All right. Well, last week we began a new series looking at the book of 1 Peter, and we are continuing in that this morning. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll be reading the second half of that chapter, which really is part two. Um, it really follows directly, uh, logically, from what we discussed, what we talked about last week, what we saw in, uh, in the first half of 1 Peter 1. So if you're willing and able, I want to invite you to stand with me as we give our attention to God's word. I'm going to read 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with imperishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its flower like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray that just as the grass withers and the flower fades, that your word that stands forever would bear fruit, would spring up new life in our lives. We pray this to you, God, our Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit and in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated, please. <clears throat> well, a couple months ago, uh, during this time of uh, quarantine, I uh, began a new podcast with a friend of mine, another pastor, uh, Brad Edwards, who is a pastor in Colorado, and it's been a great opportunity for us to work together and reflect on what God is doing um, in this time of, uh, of crisis that we're all collectively going through. And uh, one of the great experiences that we've had is ha in this podcast has been to do some interviews with people that I haven't known, haven't, ha hadn't known before. And so we did an interview with a, a new friend named Brandon Washington. Brandon is a pastor in Denver. And in the midst of our conversation with Brandon, he told a story that I want to, kind of an illustration, I suppose, that, that I want to repeat 
uh, for you this morning as we look at this passage. Brandon said that he's lived in his home in Denver for seven years, and one day he came home, and as he rolled up to his house, there were people trimming the trees in front of his house. The HOA in his neighborhood was uh, trimming the trees. And so he asked them if they were going to trim the one tree that's inside his yard, um, kind of in, in the midst of his lawn. And the guy said, no, we're not going to trim that tree because we're not supposed to trim fruit trees. And Brandon said, that's not a fruit tree. And the man trimming the trees said, with all due respect, sir, I'm an arborist, so I know a little bit more about trees than you do. That is a pear tree. And Brandon said, then why is it that in the seven years that I have lived in this house, it hasn't borne a single pear? And Brandon said, I don't want it to bear pears. I don't want it to produce fruit because I got to mow the lawn and it's going to be a pain if there's pears dropping on my lawn and it's going to get all messy and I don't want to deal with it. And the arborist explained to Brandon that it is a domesticated pear tree. And that in the process of domesticating the pear tree, what has happened is because people like the appearance of pear trees, but the fruit of them is inconvenient, they have been domesticated in such a way that their, their DNA has been changed so that they no longer bear fruit. And Brandon then said, then in what meaningful sense can it still be considered a fruit tree? In what meaningful sense can a tree be called a fruit tree if it no longer bears any fruit? And I tell you this kind of account incident today because we're talking about what it looks like for Christians to bear fruit in the way that we live. Last week we began this new series in 1 Peter that we're calling Resilient Grace and Wisdom for Living in Uncertain Times. And we began looking at what Peter tells us is the starting point for life as a Christian, which is that if you are in Christ, you have a new identity in Christ. All that we are at the most fundamental level has been marked by who Jesus is. And just as, as Jesus is a person who gave up heaven in order to come to earth where he suffered and died before being raised to glory, so those of us who have an identity that has been received from God are marked by the life of Christ. So we too uh, live lives where we go through times of suffering and trial before we will, be, we will be exalted. And so we talked last week about our identity as Christians, that we live as exiles, that no matter where we live or where we're from, we are not at home and we talked about the reality that our identity in Christ is not something that we achieve through our efforts, uh, but it is received from God. And this is the most fundamental thing that we have to understand, that if you are a Christian, your, your, your value, your dignity, your worth, who you are is marked by who Jesus is. This is our DNA as Christians. It's the most fundamental thing about us. That's what we talked about last week. And in this passage that we just read, Peter begins with the word, therefore. And whenever you see the word, therefore, you have to ask, what is it therefore, right? Um, Peter begins with the word, therefore, because what he's doing is he is saying there's a link between what I just said is true about who you are in Christ 
And it is, it is, there's a link between that and how we live as Christians. There's a connection between what he's just said and what he's about to say because your identity in Christ has marked you at the fun, most fundamental level. There is a, a logical conclusion about how you therefore live as a Christian. Or to put it in different terms, if you are in Christ, your gospel DNA will produce gospel fruit. Gospel DNA leads to gospel fruit. And the word that Peter and the whole rest of the Bible use to describe gospel fruit is the word holy. Holiness. That's what this passage is all about. But as soon as we say the word holy or holiness, it reminds me of a scene from the movie The Princess Bride. Great movie, came out, you know, in the, in the 80s. And there is this uh, scene in the movie The Princess Bride where um, the uh, Inigo Montoya and Andre the Giant and, uh, what's his name, uh, Vizzini, are running from Wesley, who is trying to win back his love, Buttercup. And no matter how fast Andre the Giant and Inigo Montoya and uh, Vizzini run away, Wesley seems to be able to catch up. And so finally, they're climbing up this rope and Andre the Giant is, is, uh, is, is climbing and pulling the other three of them up. And Wesley is behind them on the rope and he keeps gaining on them. And Vizzini keeps saying, inconceivable. And uh, finally they get to the top and, uh, and Vizzini cuts the rope and the rope falls and they look over the edge, but Wesley is still there hanging onto the edge of the cliff and he climbs up and Vizzini says again, inconceivable! And Inigo Montoya looks at him and says, you keep saying that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Okay, holiness, friends. I do not think that word means what you think it means because when we hear the word holiness, we don't tend to think of that as a positive word, do we? When we hear the word holiness, we think of jumping through some arbitrary moral hoops. We think about slavish obedience and having a holier-than-thou attitude towards other people. We think, even those of us who are Christians, I think at some deep level, when we hear the word holiness, think that holiness is a call to living a very boring lifestyle that is a call to just missing out on the best parts of life. But I do not think that word means what you think it means. Because at the most basic level, to be holy simply means to be set apart. It means to be different. Listen to um, a couple verses from, from Leviticus 18 that really describe what the word holy means. God says this to Moses, he says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you used to live. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their ways. You shall follow my rules and keep my ways and walk in them, because I am the Lord your God. To be holy simply means to be different than those around us. 
that your manner of living doesn't look exactly like everybody else's way of living. The Bible tells us that holiness, that our growth in holiness, is about moving more and more into a life of joy, of fullness. It's not about living a life that is, just, that is only a matter of self-denial, to the point where we shrivel up and die. Holiness, rather, is about becoming, in actuality, who we already are in Christ. It's because of our holiness that we are useful to God and that we are attractive to unbelievers. It is because of the holiness of God's people that the mission of God continues to be effective in the world. And this is key to understand that holiness in the Christian life is not the result of our willpower, but rather it is the inevitable outworking of our identity in Christ. I'm going to use some grammatical words uh, here, and then I'll explain what they mean. Um, but, but this is key to understanding. When we talk about holiness, we have to understand that the indicative drives the imperative. The indicative is a statement of what is true. That's what we looked at last week, who you are in Christ, not what you ought to do in Christ, but it's who you are in Christ. You have a new identity that is marked by who Christ is. The indicative drives the imperative, what we ought to do. Who we are drives what we ought to live like. Holiness is not a matter strictly of willpower, but of DNA. I mean, think about this for a second. If you, if you have a chicken, and that chicken lays an egg, and when that egg hatches, like a crocodile comes out of that egg, what you know is that egg was not laid by that chicken. Laid by that chicken is probably the right way to say that, right? What you know is that somewhere there has been a, a mishap along the way, a mix-up, because a, uh, you know, a chicken DNA will always result in the fruit, the offspring of a chicken. And if something else has been produced by it, then what you know is the DNA did not originate with the chicken. And so it is in the Christian life. If we have gospel DNA, we will bear gospel fruit. If you received a Christian identity, the result in your life will be holiness. And I'm kind of laboring this point because I think that in our modern uh, experience of Christianity, we tend to assume that belief is not connected to behavior. It's a very, um, you know, 20th, 21st century idea that I can believe something and that does not affect the way I behave in the world. Um, you know, especially I think for Christians, I believe things about Jesus that are true, and that's what saves me from my sin, so I'm free to live any old way I want. And friends, that is not remotely biblical. Um, as, a, as my friend Brad Edwards, my co-host on our podcast, put it really well, he said that when we have belief that is not linked to our behavior, it is like a hammock that is only connected on one end. It's still, I guess, technically a hammock, but you cannot rest in it. And so, friends, we are living, I think, through a time that is incredibly anxious and uncertain. We're living in a time when our culture is divided and everyone is shouting at each other. And it has to be said, I think, that the voice of the church has been sidelined in this time. And our culture does not find the perspective 
of Christians compelling or helpful. And in many cases, the way that we have responded to feeling marginalized as Christians is we have um, doubled down on our beliefs or reasserted our own rights. But the logic of the gospel would lead us back to the beginning point. The logic of the gospel would cause us to, lead, to look elsewhere. The problem in large part stems from the reality that we are not bearing gospel fruit. And our answers aren't compelling because they, the answers that we shout into the shout storm of the world are not actually bearing fruit in our own lives. And so we have to ask the question that my friend Brandon asked, in what sense can a tree be called a fruit tree if it is not bearing fruit? Is it possible that we have domesticated fruitfulness out of the Christian life because it's annoying, because it gets in the way of things? And what we really want is just to look attractive without bearing fruit. That's the question that is before us as we look at this passage. And so I want to invite you to look with me this morning at the reality of who we are in Christ and the fruit that his life on our behalf bears in the holiness of our lifestyles. So first, what does holiness look like? What does holiness look like? And I want you to notice how all-encompassing the Bible is in its picture of holiness. If there's any part of us that thinks that holiness is like an honors level Christian experience that only affects part of our lives or like those really serious Christians, those are the ones who are all about holiness. What Peter says here, what Peter shows us here is that holiness touches every single aspect of our lives. And so notice the comprehensiveness, comprehensiveness of what this passage says about our holiness. It talks about our holiness in relation to God, to other Christians, to the world, and even to ourselves. Notice how full-orbed and comprehensive this picture of holiness is. So I want to look at each of those kind of aspects briefly. In relation to God, what does holiness looks like, look like? In relation to God, our holiness looks like obedience. Verse 14, as obedient children, did not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. The fundamental reason we are to pursue holiness is because God himself is holy. Holiness is primarily God's character. He is the one who is set apart. He is the one who is different than every other being. Uh, God is different than us. God is different than us in his nature. He is eternal and we are finite. We have a beginning and an end. So we are different than God in his nature, but we are also different from God in his character. God is good in all he does. He is perfect in all he does. And, even, and we, even in our best moments, are tainted by sin. And so it is God's holiness that we share in when we are called to holiness. Uh, there are many aspects of who God, uh, the word that theologians use is, is attributes. There are many attributes, characteristics of who God is that we don't share in common with God. 
Uh, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. We, we will never be everywhere. He is omnipotent. He knows all. We will never know all. Um, we don't share in, in all of God's attributes. But some of his attributes we do share. We are called to share in God's holiness. It is because of who he is. It is because he is holy. And our identities are marked by who he is that we are called to be holy. And so what holiness looks like in relation to the God who is holy is it looks like obedience. It looks like obedience, just like a, a child is called to obey their parents. You know, there's this reality in parenting, isn't there, that uh, though we often answer the why question when our children ask why, 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 we often answer that question, but we often find ourselves getting to the point where we can no longer answer the why question, not because there's not a reason, but because our child is not capable yet of understanding what that reason is. Um, the, the reason I can't answer the question when I'm looking at my three or four-year-old, and uh, you know, let's say I've caught my three-year-old in a lie. And uh, they haven't been telling the truth. And so as a parent, I'm telling them, talking to them about the, the importance of telling the truth. And they say, why is it important that you tell the truth? And I say, well, if you don't tell the truth, then uh, people won't know when to believe you. And they say, why? And we go down this, this path and eventually we get to the point where I'm looking at a three or four year old and I'm thinking, you know, I could sit here with you for the next 30 minutes and explain to you how horribly your life is going to go if you don't learn at this point in your life that it's important to tell the truth. And I could sit here and explain to you that if you develop the character of not telling the truth, it will be very hard for you to hold down a job in your life when you're in your 30s and 40s. And it will be very hard for you to communicate in marriage um, if you don't learn to tell the truth. But I'm looking at a three-year-old who has no ability to comprehend any of this. And so at a certain point, as a parent, we just simply say, you're just going to have to trust me because of who I am. Friends, listen, when we obey God, we do not slavishly obey God. We do not mindlessly obey God. Obedience is not brainwashing. Obedience is rather saying to God, God, you have proven yourself to be faithful and good and true to me over and over again. And so now, as you call me to obedience in this area of my life that I don't understand, I'm trusting you, and I'm going to take you at your word, because I know you are good. Obedience is the what holiness looks like. It means taking God's word and believing it to be true, even uh, despite what our culture says or our feelings would lead us to believe. Holiness looks like obedience as it relates to God. In relation to other Christians, holiness looks like love. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. In relation to other Christians, holiness looks like loving each other like brothers and sisters. And there is so much to say <laughs> about 
how love works itself out in the relationship between Christians. But let me just kind of take this angle with it this morning, that to, um, um, to, to love other Christians means to give each other the benefit of the doubt. It means asking for clarification instead of jumping to conclusions. It means remain faithful to people even when they say things that we don't like. It means learning to forgive. Loving people is different than liking people. Uh, we are called to love each other even when it's difficult. The call to love is not easy, but the only thing worse than loving people is not loving people. The call to love each other is the call to make sacrifices for each other, to overlook wrongs, um, to overlook the offenses that we cause. It's difficult, but the only alternative to loving one another is to be alone. Holiness looks like loving each other, like brothers and sisters. Third, the third kind of aspect of what holiness looks like is that in relation to the world around us, holiness looks like distinctiveness. In relation to the world around us, holiness looks like distinctiveness. Verse 17, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. As we live in this world, we live lives as exiles, as sojourners, as people who don't exactly fit in, as people who are different and don't look exactly like everybody else. Christians are called to holiness in this world by living lives that are distinctive. And this is perhaps the area where there's the largest problem in contemporary Christianity because statistically, it is very difficult to quantify any way that Christians uh, are different than non-Christians as it relates to our lifestyle. Statistically, the rates of all sorts of behaviors are the same, from divorce to financial giving to um, you know, alcoholism to pornography, all these things, uh, there, there is no distinction between the way that Christians and our non-Christian neighbors live. And what we have to understand, friends, is that Christians don't make a difference in the world by looking exactly like everybody else. The only way that we make a difference in the world is by bearing the fruit of holiness, which means looking different. And so um, one of the ways I'm going to kind of tease this out for us is probably going to sound a little bit strange at first, but one of the main ways that the Bible uh, talks about the distinctiveness of Christians, of believers, is with regard to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And if you go back to Exodus 20, the fourth commandment is the longest of the Ten Commandments. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then he, he rehearses the history. And what he's saying is that you were in slavery. The people of God were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. For 400 years, God's people lived as slaves where they never had a single day off. And the God who rescues his people out of slavery and sets them free uh, brings them into a life where he asks them to set aside one day every week as holy to rest and remember that it is God 
who sets them free. God makes us distinct through setting us free from slavery to sin and death. And one of the ways that we reflect our distinct identity as Christians is by setting aside one day a week as holy, as different, as, as, a, as, a, as a day of rest and worship. In the Old Testament, the people of God observed the Sabbath on Saturday. But in the New Testament, Christians began worshiping on Sunday to commemorate Jesus' resurrection and setting aside one day each week as holy, as different, for rest and for worship. Just as the people of God in Egypt, in Exodus, lived in a time where uh, they never had a day off, we now live in a culture that is very different, and yet the thing it has in common is that there is pressure to build an identity on the basis of who we do, uh, of what we do. And when your identity is accomplished based on what you do, it is almost impossible to rest. And so we go and we go and we go, and we have technology now that enables us to work from anywhere, which means we work all the time. And we, our lives are filled with rushing around. And one of the simple ways for Christians to regain our distinctiveness is to recover the Lord's day as a day that we are not immediately rushing off or doing things that we have to do after worship or squeezing in a few more hours of work from home or filling up our days with our kids' activities. Nothing will make you, I've done this, more distinct on your child's soccer team if you say, Coach, our children won't be playing soccer on Sundays. It's a very quick way to become distinct. Not to make a point, not to make a show, but simply to set aside a day for worship and rest as God invites his people to do. In a culture where identity is created and validated by what we achieve, there's no real room for real rest. There's perhaps no more distinct way for Christians to embrace our God-given identity than to weekly set aside the Lord's day for rest and worship. Christians interact with our world in a holy way by being distinct. And then finally, the fourth picture that we see in this passage is in relation to ourselves. And in relation to ourselves, holiness looks like growth. Growth. Verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. There's this idea in our world that to be truly ourselves, we have to give expression to whatever it is we feel. That whatever I feel must immediately be expressed and immediately be lived out. But there is another sort of person who acts that way, and that is a toddler who is throwing a temper tantrum. And the Bible actually would lead us to believe that it is a sign of immaturity where anything we feel must immediately be expressed. And it is growth in maturity, it is growth in holiness to go from feeling to pause before expression. Peter is saying here, that it is not a sign of health to be controlled by your passions. God did not love you because you were holy, rather you grow in holiness because God loves you. 
He says, don't be controlled by your former passions or by the passions of your former ignorance. There was a way of life that was characteristic of all of us when we first came to Jesus. Uh, God didn't choose us because we were particularly lovely. Uh, he, he, he changes us because, or we change because he loves us. But what that means is that we all begin at a starting point from which growth is necessary and yet the promise of God it is, is that it is also inevitable. The Christian life is a life of growth. All of us are ignorant. All of us are controlled by our passions, but slowly over time, God, work, God is at work within you and he grows you and he stretches you and he matures you. He uses difficulty just, um, you know, as we're gonna continue to see throughout First Peter. If you go to the gym, your trainer, your coach, does not work only on your areas of strength. Uh, if they did, you would fire them, but your trainer, your coach's job is to look at you and then train you in your areas of weakness that you might grow. So it is with God. This is a lifelong process of growth. It is often slow, it is often frustrating to see how much of my sin still remains in my life, and yet the promised friends of God is that all those who are in Christ will grow. All those who are in Jesus are growing in holiness. This is what holiness looks like. But secondly, what motivates our holiness? Where does holiness come from? And I want to warn us against a tendency that I think we have as Christians, which is to think that because we understand something, we are therefore doing it. And I think it could be really easy to say, now that I understand this passage is saying us about what holiness looks like, that I'm actually holier, but that is not necessarily the case. Holiness is the work of God in us, whereby his word and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, God applies to us the benefits of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, to make us look more and more like Jesus. And what this means is this, that holiness, becoming holy, is God's work. It is entirely God's work, but it often feels like war. Look at verses 13 and 14. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What he's saying is that we will either be conformed by our passions to the way of the world, or we will be conformed by the Holy Spirit to the way of Jesus. The way, of the, Holy, the way that the Holy Spirit conforms us to the way of Jesus is that as we remember the work of Jesus on our behalf, and as we put to death the aberrant loves that lead us, the, the passions that lead us to sin, and as we live with hope in Christ's return, the Holy Spirit is at work within us, transforming us. It is completely the work of God, and yet we are not passive bystanders in this work of holiness. We look back to Christ's cross, verse 18. We look forward to Christ's return, verse 13. And as we do that, 
God is at work in us, causing our identity to bear the fruit of obedience and holiness. God is absolutely committed to your holiness. If you are in Christ, then he is in you, and that means that he is at work within you. It is God's work. But make no mistake, this won't happen as we passively sit by on the sidelines and watch it happen. There is a war going on in us as both God and the world work to form us into their respective images. And so Peter says, give this your entire attention. Put all that you are into this. Remember who Jesus is. Remember that he bought you. Remember that he's coming again. Long for his return because it's as you do that that the Holy Spirit is working in you to make you more and more like Jesus. And it's interesting here that as Peter ends this passage, he does so by talking about the role of the Word of God, the Bible, in the life of those who are being made holy. And what he says essentially in verses 23 through 25 is that the Word of God is the instrument that God uses for our, uh, uh, to, to make us holy, to form us to the image of Jesus, because it is the only lasting source for wisdom in life. And so if I can say this um, fairly bluntly this morning, friends, there are two objects in our lives that are seeking to form us. And I have them both right here. Your phone and your Bible are the two objects in our lives, in your life, that are seeking to form you into an image. I mean, think about this. The, the phone, our phones, are one of the main ways that we interact with our culture as it seeks to shape us into its image. And our Bible, our Bibles are one of the main ways that we interact with God as he seeks to form us into the image of Christ. And so the question in some ways comes down to a simple measure of time. Which of these two objects is shaping you through, which of these is dominating your life? If you want a simple place to start, if you want a simple point of application this morning, if you're saying, I don't have any idea where I would begin to pursue holiness, here's a place to start. Take your phone, and before you go to bed at night, put it as far away as you possibly can from where you're gonna sleep. So that when you wake up in the morning, you don't have your phone 18 inches from your head. It's the first thing you look to. Because if we are going to pursue a life of holiness, we have to begin by being rooted in Christ. As much as we can know information about God, we have to begin by being formed by God in his word. It's about formation, not simply information. One of the tragedies of modern Christianity is that we think if we know something, we are doing it. And it is not true, and that is being borne out all around us in our world. If we want to grow in holiness, we have to listen to God's word. We have to be shaped by love for God's word. And when we have these, they're great, I'm not against technology, but they're molding us into an image uh, that, that, that wants everything to happen now, faster, the way you want it. Christian growth is slow. 
And we have to be formed by God's word as the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives. We're living in a time when I think there's a tremendous opportunity because we are living through a world in crisis. And the reality, friends, as I've kind of hinted at, is that we don't grow when everything is easy. When things are going great, like we don't grow on vacation. When I go on vacation, the only thing that grows is my waistline. But when there is a crisis, when we know that something is not going well, that is when we have to lean into who God is and we have to adapt. This crisis that we are experiencing has the potential to make us holy because it is humbling us. And so we have a chance to respond by either responding with anger or allowing God to humble us to make us holy. And I believe that those who will ultimately have the greatest influence going forward in their families and their neighborhoods and their cities and even beyond that at the end of the day won't be the ones with the loudest voices because all of our voices can be loud now with technology. The ones who will have the greatest influence won't be those with the slickest ideas or the loudest voices, but it will be those whose authority comes from God's work in them. Christians, we are exiles in this world. We are not in the habit of living like exiles. We are in the habit of living like we are citizens here who have rights that must be respected. So will we double down on what's not working? Because it's not working. Or will we return to who we are in Christ that we might bear gospel fruit? This week I was talking with a woman who is uh, one of the most faithful Christian women I no, and I was asking her, how is it that you came to the points of being so just identified in, in your being, seeing your identity so clearly in Christ? It didn't come from your family of origin. It didn't you know, come from well, any one of these places that we might look to. So what, what is it? How, how did this come to happen for you? And she told me the story of a, as a, as a newlywed, a recent college graduate, going to a new church for the first time. And she said, we were in this large church. There's probably 2,000 people in the congregation that morning. And at the end of the message, the, uh, the, the pastor, having talked about the call of God on uh, our lives, gave essentially what we would call an altar call, not to belief in Jesus kind of for the first time, but he said, if you are a person who is willing to say, no matter where God calls me, I will go, would you please stand up? And this woman said, I stood up and I looked around the room of 2,000 people and there were eight of us standing. And she said, what in the world are we here for? This is who we are in Christ. If you are in Christ, your identity is marked by who he is. Who he is changes everything about who we are. And if we are rooted in that DNA, we will bear gospel fruit. Friends, God loves you. He is committed to you. He is the source of your life and its ultimate destination. He has demonstrated his love for you and that he gave up his own son to buy you back from slavery to sin. He has set your entire existence on the strength 
of that foundation that wherever you are, you might find yourself at home, not in the world, but only in him. Because you belong to him, because your value and worth and dignity is secure in who he is, he is committed to transforming you into the sort of person who bears gospel fruit. That is a beautiful picture. When who God is begins to flow out of who you are, friends, would you respond to this invitation from God, this imperative from God? Be holy because I am holy. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that having called us to follow you, you do not leave us as we are. We thank you for the promise that because you have begun to work in us, you will surely carry it on to completion. God, I pray that this morning we would hear the word holiness with new ears because we've seen the alternative. We've seen what going with the flow looks like and it leads to anger and fear and division. It leads to cynicism. And so, God, I long for something different. I long to see different fruit coming out of my life. God, would you transform us? Would you make us uh, more of the people we already are in Christ? Because we don't simply want to put on a good appearance. We want to bear the fruit that is the inevitable overflow of who we are in Jesus. We pray in his name.